I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How are you doing, Podcats? Adam Buxton here. Thank you so much for joining me for podcast number 28. It is a very, very beautiful day out here in East Angula at the end of August 2016. The sun is shining brightly. There's a wonderful warm wind blowing. I'm strolling along in my short-sleeved top and I have on my feet sort of, well, they're like hiking boots crossed with sandals. It's an infernal hybrid. My wife does not like them. She says they are grotesque. But yeah, it's nice. Rosie's up ahead antagonizing critters. Sorry about the gap between this podcast and the last one. It's been a few weeks now. I'm going to try and make these a bit more regular. But yeah, we've been away for the uh, summer break, me and Team Buckles. We went on an exciting trip to America, which maybe I'll tell you about at some point. I was thinking maybe I'd quite like to write a sort of travel piece in podcast form. It's in my blood, I suppose. My dad was a travel writer, which we talk about in this uh, podcast episode, me and my guest. And I do love going on holiday... And I always remember being impressed by the fact that people would pay my dad to take us on holiday. I just thought, well, that's brilliant. And we were very lucky in that respect, got to travel the world a few times with my pa. And I'm always on the lookout for ways that I can do that with my own family and get invited on some free holidays. There you go, that's my plan. Um, But listen, this week's guest is Michael Palin. He's a British actor, TV presenter, travel writer, diarist, and, along with John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Terry Gilliam, and the late Graham Chapman, a member of the comedy team Monty Python. They used to make TV shows, sketch shows, for the BBC between 1969 and 1974. And Michael and I spoke a bit about the films, really, the Monty Python films, rather than the TV series, because they were my introduction to the Python universe uh, when I saw them as a youngster in the early 80s, particularly Life of Brian, released in 1979, and The Meaning of Life from 1983, both directed by Terry Jones. Michael and I met one rainy London morning at the end of May this year, so just before the European referendum, and I had just seen a video that had been created by the Remain campaign, which repurposed the What Have the Romans Ever Done For Us scene from Life of Brian and uh, turned it into a sketch with Patrick Stewart and various other British actors and comedians talking as if they were MPs about, you know, what have the Europeans ever done for us? It was good. I mean, it didn't, um, you know, work 
I suppose, but uh, anyway. And we met at Michael's Club in Soho. A lovely old place, all creaky stairs and wood-panelled walls and soft-lit, you know, and uh, bits of challenging artwork juxtaposed with framed photographs of old literary and acting lushes and legends. Uh, and the conversation was bookended by talk of my dad. And the reason for that was that he'd been on my mind more than usual because when I heard that I was going to do the podcast with Michael, I went back to Michael's diaries and rewatched some of his travel programs and generally went on a massive Palin jag. And in doing so, I was reminded frequently of my dad for one reason or another. They weren't much alike, but he was a travel writer and he self-published an autobiography shortly before his death at the end of 2015. And as you'll hear, I gave Michael a copy of the book, along with another um, more practical gift. I guess because on some level I just wanted to talk about him. And um, also I thought my dad would have appreciated me passing his book along to a, a kindred spirit. So, here we go. because I got you a gift. And oh. if it's inconvenient for you to carry the gift, I'll just oh, arrange nice. for it. Well, if it's enormous, if it's a piano... It's not a piano. Not, I could take it down to my office and they could, I can leave it there and collect it later. OK. Yeah, well, maybe, no, yeah, that's maybe very nice. do that. Thanks. All right, it's not... I, I'm just explaining to Michael that I've got him a gift and I was worried that if he had a long way to go afterwards, it would be annoying to carry it. It's very thoughtful. It's obviously happened to you. Yeah, sometimes people it, brought you things. At gigs, so Adam, uh, yeah, after a gig, yeah. people will come yeah. up and they'll and they've crafted like I've made you. Uh, I've made a giant papier mâché yes. reproduction of your head. It's taken yeah. me five years. Yeah, yes, that's right. And it is very <laughs> touching. But you're like, yeah, I'm on my yeah. bike and I'm in Manchester and yeah. I've got to get back home tomorrow. Yeah, here's what I've got you. And I don't know if this is any good because it may not be something you still enjoy. But mm. I gleaned that you oh, may have done. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, a bit of Bushmills, yes. You Irish whiskey. To, you yeah. refer to mm. enjoying Bushmills on your um, in your diaries occasionally. Do I really? I write things like that down. Yeah, I? sad, isn't it? Well, great. No, that's lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah. You know, you can always re-gift it. <laughs> I did once do an embarrassing thing at a party. I took somebody. It's a last-minute gift, and we took them some chocolates uh-huh. in a long, thin pack. Look rather nice. We weren't going to eat them. We don't eat much chocolate. And got to this house, and um, the children sort of got it. Hey, what's that? Come in, oh, can we unwrap it? And I said, Oh, sure, yeah. And they unwrapped it, and there were all these chocolates laid out, and there's a letter on each one, and it read, "Thank you, Michael." 
<laughs> given to me on the Parkinson show or something like that. So it was much, much laughter. Yeah. Oh, dear. Personalised chocks, that's... Yeah, yeah, but like giving then. them to somebody as a... As a you know, yeah. your gift. And he wasn't called Michael. That would have been ideal, obviously. Yes, no, no, that's, that, that would have been absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. Did, you, did it cross your mind for a second to try and concoct a story to explain it? Like, oh, it's a, it's a... No, there's no way that you could really explain that one, is there? Um, I or think I tried, but with children it's very, very difficult. Right. Grown-ups you can fool... Most of the time. Children, they know. You could say... What's that? Well, why, why has it got your name on, not my dad's name or Haven't my mum's name? Thank yeah, you, thank you, Michael. It's, it makes chocolates actually taste better. The other gift I have for you... Oh. This is my dad's autobiography. Ooh. Ooh. Now, my dad passed yeah. away last year. He was yeah. 91. Oh. He was a great traveller. And I yeah. always think of him when I think of you and your travels because I know that you've read a lot of the same books that my dad used oh, to love. Great. yeah. A Time of Gifts was yeah, a big yeah. one for uh, him. Yeah, yeah. And he was in the war. You know, he had a lot of experiences that chime with a lot of stuff that you have done okay. and talked yeah. about and seem yeah. to be interested in. Oh. So obviously you don't That's have to read nice, it. That's rather nice, a kindred spirit. No, I like that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he was a kindred spirit in a lot of ways. I think there's actually travellers, certain kind of traveller, there is a sort of library of books that they all subscribe to. Yeah. Um, I mean, Paddy Lee Firmers usually... Colin Thubrin's usually in there somewhere. That's right. Uh, very often not Paul Theroux, which I think is odd, because I think people feel he's a bit competitive. I mean, I, I love Paul Theroux's work. Yeah. And The Great Railway Bazaar was really what... Uh, the book that kept me going when we did Around the World in 80 Days. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, there's a Venice by Jan Morris. That's one of my all-time favourites, because I read that very early on when I was... about the first time that my wife and I... Um, as a married couple, travelled abroad, and we took a holiday in Venice. I'd never been there, and I read the book first. And I think that's the criterion of a good travel book, is if it just makes the place better, and if you still want to read it when you're there. Yeah. So many of them just tell you everything, and you think, oh, well, seen that, been there, read it all. But this was just perfect. It made you relish the place even more when you went. So that's, that's always been high on my list. He loved Jan Morris, my dad, yes. Yeah. And... Um... He was, my dad was for a long time the travel editor of the Sunday Telegraph. Oh, right, okay. So he, it was thanks to him that we were very well travelled as, mm. as children. Yeah. And we went to America yes. a great deal. Yeah. Um, I do recognise it now. Uh, we went to almost every single state in the US yeah. at various points. And he was funny because he was very old fashioned in all kinds of ways. Like he was mm. from a totally different generation. And mm. if you get a chance to read any of it, you'll see that his prose is very. Dense, long sentences. Oh, right, yes. A yes. little bit like the way that. Well, Paddy Lee Firmer. Paddy Lee Firmer, exactly. Right, yeah, yeah. He admired so much, but how dense and, and, and all that mm. uh, architectural vocab. Well, it makes for a richer book. And I found when I was writing the books for my travels that I was very conscious of, of other travel writers, but trying not to be. And yet, as much as I tried to be my own self, I would get drawn into <laughs> to elaborate sunset and sunrise descriptions, which would just go on and on, and the beige and the salmon, and then it's modified into a sort of silky, soft indigo blue. 
cut it all out. You know, in the end, it was what, half a page just to describe the sun going down. I like that um, stuff, though. Uh, your sunset descriptions you do, are really? very evocative. Oh, oh, that's very nice. And also, you know, it's hard to beat a good sunset, isn't it? For... Well, it's, it's a something about good sunsets. We all like them. That's mainly because we're up when that happens. Sunrises, we don't always see because we're yeah, still in yes. bed. But yes, there is something about the end of the day, and usually it's cocktail hour, so if you're lucky, right. you're in a place where you can have, have a little beverage in your hand. But yes, it is something wonderful. And in Africa, I mean, the sunsets were extraordinary because the sun was enormous and something to do with the desert perspective and all that, the dust in the air made it sort of begin to tremble uh-huh. as it sank towards the horizon. So it was that you couldn't take your eyes off it. I mean, in London, you don't often see sunset. Yes. Um, and then I suppose when it's that size, or it appears to be that size, yeah. you can actually see the movement of it yes, as well. Yes, yes. And you see it sort of squelched down uh-huh. and it almost widens at the bottom like it's some bad bit of animation and they haven't quite got yeah. it right. Well, that's the kind of thing you see on documentaries, I suppose, and you always assume that it's whatever lens they have on the camera yeah. that is producing that effect, but you're actually seeing that for real. Well, I, I did find that in Africa, yeah. certainly in North Africa, desert Africa, yeah. And I suppose it's it being unique as well that you're seeing something that no one will ever see again. Yes, and it's kind of, it's almost like the power of nature. It's like huge waterfalls. Yeah. I've never been able to be blasé about, you know, the Victoria Falls. I could watch them for, for days and weeks. It's so stunning yeah. seeing this vast amount of water trickling along, you know, and it's quite a sort of... I don't know if you've seen the Victoria Falls. You probably have with your dad. But the, the river is not that deep. Right. But... There's a lot of water in it. When it just hurtles straight over the cliff over a period of about six, over a distance of about 600 yards, it is stunning, mm-hmm. the force and the power. I could look at that forever. So there's something similar to a big, big sunset going on there. You just think, wow, I just sit and watch. Yeah. Then trying to write about it. That's hard, how your, it? how your dad, your father dealt with it. Um, um, did did he, he enjoyed the challenge of writing about things like that. Uh, I suppose he did. I mean, the, the, the nice thing about writing in general, isn't it, is, is that you have an opportunity to organise your thoughts in a way that's very difficult sometimes when you're just speaking off the top of your head. But, yeah, you can take ages doing it. I mean, there's, in theory, you could just go on forever, couldn't you? I guess the good writers are the ones that are able to set things down quite quickly and just have mm. at their fingertips all these... I sometimes wonder whether... It's, it's catching it at the spontaneous moment when it happens, mm-hmm. which is the difficult thing. I think a lot of very good travel writers make it up later on. And then they've got a slightly... I'm not make it up entirely, but they've got a sort of... A mixture of things can come in and a bit of memory and then something you read about it and then create out of that. But actually getting the moment, I think, is really quite difficult and making that original, making that fresh. Mm-hmm. That's what I was... I tried to do because in my my books were sort of written in diary form, so I hope that people who read it would realise that this man has not got time to 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 write marvelous sort of um, rich language. It's sort of just capturing the moment. Right, and but you keep I, your diary with you, you know, when you're travelling, obviously. And do you sit there looking at the sunset and sometimes take notes, or is it you go back to the hotel afterwards? And yeah, it doesn't really. There's no pattern to it. Um, it's a bit, sometimes a bit like going to an art gallery and looking at the caption mm-hmm. for about five minutes and then looking at the painting for about 30 seconds and moving on. You know, there's a danger if you're looking at a fantastic sunset or the Victoria Falls 
or an approaching sandstorm, something like that, and you get your diary out, you're missing what's actually happening. So I have to be right. aware. Come on, Michael, take this in, write it down later. Yeah. So the diary isn't, isn't an exact commentary on life as it happens. It's sort of moments. But I do little bits of detail I try and put down later, <laughs> you know, over the meal. You try and write the colours and all things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I hope you don't mind me thrusting that upon you. It's, uh, it's a lot... I only just started reading it, really, to be honest, because um, you know, my dad was always saying, obviously, when are you going to read my book? He's been mm. working on it for ages. But um, the whole business of caring for him in the, in the last year of his life kind of overwhelmed everything, and the last thing I wanted to do was read his book. Oh, right, yeah. You know what I mean? Was he ill? He was ill, yeah, oh, he had yeah. cancer. Oh, um, mm. But it w- it wasn't. <clears throat> well, I was going to talk about all this cheery stuff. Okay, a yeah. A bit later yeah. on, if you don't yeah. mind. Yeah, no, no. Fine. Um, again, inspired by reading your diaries mm. and, and and how you talk about death and I don't know. Maybe we should talk about it now. Now that we're now that the subject has been raised. No thanks, podcast waiter. Let's talk about death later. Until then, let's talk all about Michael's diaries and also Monty Python and keep things a little bit more up tempo and talk about death at the end. I keep a diary occasionally myself, mm. and I found an entry in 2009 where I was listening to the audio book of your Hollywood diaries. All right. And I, my entry says, Listen to Michael Palin's Hollywood diaries on the train. Luxuriate in his enviable life. Envy his apparent ability to go for a jog, think of an idea for a film, and write it in around two months, despite every other thing he has going on. Strange moment when he talks about being held up on a train journey by signalling problems outside Manningtree. A few minutes later, I'm held up by signalling problems outside Manningtree. <laughs> Perhaps I'm the new Michael Palin. So that was, <laughs> that was a weird moment of synchronicity I had. <laughs> well, I'm very glad that I put in about uh, being held up by signals at Manningtree. <laughs> a lot of people would not have... Editors would have said no. <laughs> people don't want to know that, Michael. They really don't where it is that you're held up by signals, but it's Manningtree. It's such a wonderful place. No, no, it just doesn't work. Buckles I think that sort of bit of detail is, is, is important, and you've now made me feel that it was worth keeping that. There you go. Yeah. All right, good. You also mm. make a, a reference, I think, in the Travelling to Work diaries, a very fleeting reference to talking with the other Pythons about the whole business of keeping a diary and there being strong disagreements within the unit about the wisdom of it. And do you remember variously like what their opinions were and what the pros and cons were as far as they were concerned? Yes, and the, as usual, there was a split, and, and very often it was a kind of... Um went right back to varsity days. It was a Cambridge-Oxford split. And I think the Cambridge people, John and Eric and Graham, thought keeping a diary was a rather sort of woolly-minded thing to do, you know, should be getting on and sort of facing up the challenges of the world and developing theses on this, that and the other and just writing a diary. I mean, come on, only... Too much navel gazing. People have nothing to do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Terry Jones and myself, and Terry kept a diary for a bit... um, both could see the value of it, but we could always see the value in the in the sort of unintended little bit of detail. Um, and I think that's just the way we were. We were a bit more reflective, and and we, not everything had to sort of prove its worth in the diary. Whereas I think Cambridge are very they're kind of quite a rigorous sort of education there. The things had to be proven that they were it was worthwhile doing and all that. And you can't prove it's worthwhile keeping a diary at all. It's just sort of something you do. You can 
contest whether you should publish it or not, but keeping a diary, that's just it's impossible to prove. It's just um, a feeling of wanting to record things. And it all came to a head when we were writing in Barbados for um, The Life of Brian. And <laughs> we'd written most of the film, but there was a feeling that we needed some hard time together, really, to, to knock it on the head. And John and Eric, Eric said, oh, I, I know someone in Barbados got a villa, we could go there. And we had this ridiculous sort of <laughs> argument with Terry Jones and myself saying, no, we don't want to go to Barbados. We'll never write anything. It'll be far too much fun. We'll be water skiing and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Why don't we just, let's do the work, then go to Barbados. And they looked at us kind of askance. So why would, why would you not want to go to Barbados in January? Then it went slightly to extremes because Terry Jones was very, very keen on... He would defend anything. He would say, January's a lovely time in England. It's foggy, it's wet. Yes, precisely, they would say. And Terry, that's what's wonderful. That's what's so wonderful about it. And then Terry would get very impassioned and we'd rather lose the thread. Anyway, we went to Barbados. We were going to write a book um, about, well, the life of Brian's script plus some other stuff in it. And it was suggested, I think, by the publisher that we should all keep a diary for yeah. the two weeks while we were there. I have the book. Ah, and um, no one did, apart from Terry and myself. Yeah. Yes. And I was a bit disappointed because that was only you're only asking people to keep a diary for two weeks. Right. So that made me feel, and I may be wrong here, Adam, that, that they had something about diaries that was too revelatory. That was kind of it was examining yourself, and they didn't want to go there. Yeah. That's of my theory. It's weird, isn't it? Because it is a uh, a strange thing to analyse your own life and your own thoughts in that level of detail? Well, I would question the word analyse. I mean, it's also recording. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just yeah. Re recording what you of did in course. a day there doesn't are... seem to be a very a bad idea, especially when, you know, later in life you want to check, was I there, did I do this? And actually my diaries have been used in court uh, oh, right. because I'm the only one who kept an account. But so there's a difference, I think, between recording and analysing. Yeah. Of course, you're right. And, um, and yes, you don't do too much analysis within your diaries. There's not too much sort of uh, soul-searching that goes on on the page, at least in the published form. Yeah. I um, mean, I, I, I sometimes think, as I look at them, it's there between the lines. Of course. You mentioned writing the um, Life of Brian stuff in Barbados, and I have here an incredibly tatty copy of the Life of Brian scrapbook. <laughs> It's a very badly bound book. All all known copies are falling apart. Yeah. Yours is well within the tradition. Right. <laughs> but, oh, it's, I love this book, and we used to pour through it. And as with a lot of the Python books, I got the books before I saw the actual oh. films because I was too young. Mm. So I would have been about 12 when I got this, perhaps, uh, around 1981 or 1982. And uh, it was wonderful and fascinating and... Strange, and I couldn't quite figure out what stuff was actually part of the film and what was just. Are there are there sort of deleted scenes in here, as it were? Are there scenes yes, that never made? Yes, scenes that didn't make it. Right. Scenes that we didn't even film. The heeled loonies in there yeah. somewhere, and and various things like that. What I that picture the, of you. Guys there we are, naked. All, all naked, apart from John, who wasn't there that day. And those uh, that that was taken by Richard Avedon, one of the great sort of photographers of the of the 20th century. And... I like Terry we, yeah, Jones's... Uh, yeah, Terry Jones. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> down. Backside. Uh, the, I'm glad you liked it because 
although the book is falling apart because it's rather strangely sort of designed, it's a great big book and didn't fit on any shelves or anything, yeah. at least it wasn't just the screenplay. There were lots of other little ideas and jokes well, and spin-offs that were in there. And we always felt that was important, that the Python spin-off stuff, whether it be uh, albums or or the books, um, worked in their own right mm-hmm. and provided something that you couldn't get anywhere else. And that was rather... So I'm glad you, you like that. Very much. <laughs> and they were that. incredibly densely packed as well. Mm. There was always a sense mm. with everything Python-related that no mm. space should be wasted. If there was a space there, then you could put a joke in it. I, I, you're really spot on because that was the feeling when we made the shows themselves. You know, if there was a bare wall behind even though it didn't need to have much on the wall because the action was taking place elsewhere, we'd put something on that wall. I remember there was someone's little suburban room, just an ordinary sort of sofa and a couple of chairs, and in the background were sort of joints of meat that were sort of framed on the wall. They weren't absolutely immaterial to the sketch. They were never alluded to, but they were there for people who wanted to see it. And there was another... I remember one which I was particularly pleased with. It was zooming in to a presenter of some dynamic documentary and the throbbing music and all that. And above um, the presenter was a big sign saying, is the Queen sane? Question mark. <laughs> and it just zoomed in very quickly so you could barely, barely see it. Most people would just miss it. But, yeah. but it's just there. And so that feeling of putting everything in we felt if you've got people watching and there's that, 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 that screen, fill it. If there's I don't think it occurred it. to anyone to do that kind of thing in pre-video days because they thought, well, it's going to zip by so fast, they'll never notice. I think mm. in, after the advent of VCRs, yeah. when people realised that they were going to watch things over and over again and stop things, then certainly people started to pack things, like The Simpsons, I suppose, yeah. um, were a good example of people in that Python tradition who wanted to pack as many yeah. jokes as they could into every frame. Yeah. But we used to pore over these books, and we loved them. And the picture in the Life of Brian scrapbook, which I'm holding, that really fascinated me, I remember it being one of the very early things that made me think, hey, this looks like a good job, was you guys in <laughs> Barbados. Oh, yeah. And, Sitting um, looking at the sea. Yeah. Enjoying a drink Having at the sunset. Having a drink. Yeah. And I just thought, well, that looks terrific. <laughs> Five mates sat there writing what they don't realise is going to be one of, well, maybe the best yes. comedy film ever, and having a drink, looking out at the sunset. And so despite your reservations, do you remember it fondly as, as being, I mean, it was clearly it was productive because you got some good stuff written. Yeah, no, no, it was absolutely fine. It was absolutely fine. It was just a kind of, um, I suppose... Marking territory. We all had different territory we wanted to do. You know, I suppose Terry and I were kind of, if you like, more sort of family, home-based, doing very silly stuff, but using a very serious, you know, sort of basic sort of um, home environment to do it in. Whereas Eric and and John, Eric particularly, was always quite a traveller. And Eric knew friends in France and was moving around and... And, and John, you know, was going to America and they, they were sort of kind of restless, I think. Yeah. There you are, in Heron Bay. There we are, yes. Yeah. Sat on your Heron chairs. Bay with Keith Moon. There's Keith Moon who was staying nearby. And Keith Moon would walk up the beach with some bottles of Dom Perignon and, uh, and chat. And, and he was going to be given a part in the film, actually. 
but he died shortly afterwards, sadly, very sad. He, um, he, he just happened to be staying on the island? Yeah, happened to be staying on the island, right. yeah, yeah. As did Mick Jagger, and uh, I think in the diaries there's the tale of Mick Jagger uh, coming round, and we play charades. And Mick Jagger's charade of the Sex Pistols was something really to be seen and treasured, <laughs> you know, by gynaecologists everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know George Harrison at that point? I think I'd just met him. Right. Eric was more of a friend of his because Eric was spending a lot of time in L.A. at the time mm. and was much more so part of the music world. So Eric was the one who sort of really picked up on George's enormous sort of fan worship of Python, which mm-hmm. we didn't really realise. Um, and I didn't know him terribly well at that time, but got to know him very well afterwards. Yeah. Well, he was in the film, wasn't he? He was in the film. He was Mr Papadopoulos, who was That's offering right. the mount. And he was an important financial backer, wasn't he? He was absolutely crucial. Yeah. I mean, without George, the film would not have been made. Simple as that. Because EMI backed out when the head of EMI read the script. And some very nice people lower down in EMI had said, oh, it would be great to be associated with the Pythons. This is really funny. And then Michael Carreras, I think it was, who was the head of EMI, read it and said, we can't do this, you know, a company like our own, you know famous old traditional company, shareholders will panic, a stock price will fall. You can't do, you know, sort of blasphemous stuff like this. So we were, we were left with a script, a little bit of a set built out in Tunisia, and it was George who picked up the baton. That was when Eric asked him and told him about it in L.A., and, and George and his manager agreed to give us $5 million mm. to get the film made. And memorably, George said, we was asked, you know, five million to, you know, one film, why? He said, well, you know, I just wanted to see it, which is a great, you know, it's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> he was such a Python fan. And very few Python fans have five million to spend. Right. Uh, but he saved us, absolutely. Saved that, saved that film, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, it's so great. It's obviously a film that tops polls of not only favourite, but critically... Yeah. And that's despite all the hoo-ha that accompanied its release. Well, maybe because of. Yeah, I suppose so. Although, to me, my family was never very mm. religious. I wasn't totally scandalised by the religious aspect of it. It just was very funny. And that was for, uh, you know, like a 12-year-old watching it who didn't get a lot of the references necessarily. I, I think that there was definitely a knee-jerk reaction, from very often from people who hadn't seen the film mm-hmm. and knew they wouldn't want to, and therefore went on to say, quite unjustifiably, that others shouldn't. So they tried yeah. to stop it. And that's the, that's the thing. And also, interestingly, you saying you were 12, there are all those people out there who say, we're doing this because our children shouldn't see this. Mm-hmm. You know, they bring in the children. This happened with Monty Python... The TV shows were first made. I mean, these are TV shows about sheep falling out of trees and hitting newsreaders and, you know, um, bishops wrestling. But they said, no, we cannot have this... This cannot go out early because children might see it. And these people who speak on behalf of protecting children seem to have got it completely wrong. It's just their way of saying, um, we don't like it. Um, Therefore, we're going to bring in children as a sort of reason. Sure. And, And the children like you when you were 12 um, other people really loved it Python was sort of, I think Python was written for children and, you know, and adults as well but it certainly was not 
It, was not, it wasn't intended to be an adult show in any shape or form. I think that children as well tend to remain largely unaffected by the stuff they don't understand. Yes. There's a lot of stuff that just goes over their heads. He filters them out. Yes, yeah, exactly. yeah. I was responding to... I loved the way you hopped about as the ex-leper. Mm. And that became kind of my template mm. for a funny way to move and behave physically. It was so sort of joyous and skippy. <laughs> Yeah. And um, <laughs> and then, I mean, you were you were the person that I focused on, I suppose, because you seemed to be, apart from just being very physically funny, and a lot of your characters looked warm and and kind of <laughs> welcoming in that way yeah. that some of the other characters <laughs> seemed fearsome and frightening. Yeah. So as a yeah. child, yeah. You're, you're focusing on the Palin characters. Mm. Then there was the sort of nice uh, Roman. Um, oh, yes, one of my favourite characters. Yeah, it's such a great idea that he just feels really bad about it, handing he, out all the crosses. He, yeah, I just... Uh, how do you play this character? I thought, well, he's... Think about it. He's someone from a well-off, very sophisticated Roman family. What's his name again? Uh, Nicus Wetus. There you go. And he's sent out to this god-awful place in the baking heat where the, you know, there's a civil war on, really, and um, tries to live his his ideals, his sort of left-wing ideals, that this, you know, these people shouldn't be suffering, there's a reason why they're doing this, they're all human beings, let's look at their story, and he's given this terrible job of sending people to be crucified, which is about, about the most horrible death you could have. So he, he rationalises by being terribly sort of... He, he's wrestling with his conscience as they come along, and, and one of my favourite bits in the whole film is when Eric Idle comes along and says... Uh, he says crucifixion. No, no, I've been told uh, I could, uh, I'll be set free and go and live on a desert island for the rest of my life. And the centurion is just, just wonderful. He's oh, that's so nice. Oh, I'm so pleased. And Eric says, no, no, it's crucifixion, really. <laughs> so, you know, from both sides, he's assaulted by the authorities and also the people he's sending see him as a complete drip. Um, oh, and uh, so he says, yes, if you go, yeah, I know, one on the first on the left and all that. Yeah. And did you guys ever sort of analyse those kinds of beats in the films? Or, or you just did what you thought was funny, but did you ever think about, like, what feeling it gave to an audience? Because for me, especially, again, as a youngster watching these films mm. in, in a very simple-minded, mm. literal way, I'd often be confounded or, or sort of a little bit shaken by the endings that were quite bleak, mm. like Holy Grail, so you're invested in all these fun, mm. nutty nights. Yeah. And then suddenly you're ripped out of the thing at the, at, right at the end with this postmodern flourish of having the cops turn up and mm. bundle them all into mm. vans, and then the film runs out, mm. and then you're left with that crazy intermission music. Mm. It's quite jarring, you know. And did you guys think about all that kind of thing, or you just thought, nah, it's funny? I think we thought, this has to be funny. But... With endings was really interesting. We never, we were never very good at endings, which is why we actually um, Python was not not particularly good at sketches which had beginning, middle, and end. The traditional sketch format. Very often we'd have an idea which would sort of be very, very funny, but why did it have to be concluded? Um, and so when we were writing the TV shows, we ignored that sometimes and just cut to animation, cut to film, you know and then you go back later. So having to have endings, and you have to have endings to movies, was, um, was something we were not very good at, and I think that's why we sort of 
devised a sort of non-ending for Holy Grail. It didn't come out of the story of the knights and all that, because, you know, where, where does that go? So we create this um, underlying story, modern story, about the historian uh, and all that. And so in the end, I think we suddenly thought, well, let's let's end it with a modern scene and the police coming and arresting everybody, which is actually supposed to be funny. I don't think we felt it was bleak. I think we thought it was just it hilarious. Is, it is funny. funny. But, but, uh, but as, <clears throat> as I say, as a 12-year-old watching it, it was like, what the hell's going on now? Mm. I don't understand. Where are all the... They can't arrest the knights. And then... Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Um, but did you even... Were there even discussions about having a more conventional narrative tying up of the story? Um, I can't remember any. Uh, and Holy Grail was written fairly fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, later films, particularly Meaning of Life, we spent ages agonising over the shape of it and what would come where. Um, and I think probably... I think the ending probably came just like that. We had a session, sat around, what happens, you know? Do they find the Grail? What do they do with the Grail when they found it? Um... You know, nobody sort of seemed to know quite what to do, and suddenly the idea must have come up. Why don't we get the historian, uh, historian's death, um, which seemed like a silly moment in the middle of the film, make this a significant thing, then the police are onto it and, and the knights are going to be arrested. We thought the idea of arresting them, a modern lot, arresting the knights was a really nice sort of um, combination of conventions yeah. uh, coming together. And, 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 and I, it felt neat and it felt right. Yeah. Mm. And then in Life of Brian, you have almost what seems like a deliberate attempt to frustrate any possibility of a happy resolution to this whole mm. thing. And you're left with this desperate mm. misunderstanding that's ended up with Brian being mm. on the cross, mm. f- facing, as you say, mm. a miserable mm. death. Mm. And then all these opportunities for a reprieve come along, mm. all these little glimmers of hope mm. in, the, yeah. in the, the people's front of Judea yeah. and Judith and Otto. Yeah. But they're all snatched away from him. It's so cruel. Yes. Did you ever think, like, God, this is bleak? I think, again, we always looked for what we felt would make people laugh most of all. And we'd sort of established the convention that, you know, Brian isn't Jesus, but he's treated this way and he's continually protesting his innocence, he's not the Messiah. And this fact this goes all the way through, right to the fact that he's on the cross. Somehow it felt necessary to, to carry it right through. Otherwise, that would be a bit of a cheat at the end. They said, oh, he's not, you know, we're sorry we got it wrong. That wouldn't have been Python. Um, and, and, of course, what saved us there was Eric coming up with always look on the bright side. And there again, that was a moment when we must suddenly have said, oh, that's got to be the ending. They sing a song on the cross. Um, Had you said, like, we should do a song here, Eric, why don't you go off and write something? Or did he just turn up with it? No, Eric turned up with it. We all all had a session, really, on the last section. And I think Terry and myself wrote quite a lot of that bit. Um, And Eric came up with with the song. And it's in my diary. I rather sort of, you know, so it's okay and all that. (laughs) Typical, this is what diaries are. That that on that day when I heard it's okay, it's quite nice. Where will it fit? And, of course, it fitted perfectly. And... The main discussions, I remember at that point, were what should the process of crucifixion look like? You know, do they have nails? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that sort of thing. And that was really... That was debated for quite a long time. And we decided, no, that's... that's we can't do it that way. So they were sort of, if you remember, they There's, were strapped up, right. roped down and all that. There was no bashing of nails into palms. Yeah. 
funny we were sort of copped out there. I don't. I it think wouldn't have been funny. It just wouldn't have, have been. Over. Some things are funny. It would have played badly funny. with me and my mum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when we were watching it one rainy yeah. afternoon with me aged uh, 12 again. That would have been embarrassing, wouldn't it? Well, you? I was well already... you wouldn't have found it. Would you have found... It wouldn't have been funny, so I don't think you'd have I was been able it... to say, well, it made me laugh. Yeah, I was already heartbroken that mm. he was going to die. Yeah. So, again, yeah. Yeah. it would have just been too extreme, mm. I think. And I do remember registering the fact that it wasn't nails in the hand and thinking, mm. well, that's something And least. did you feel, well, he hasn't died... And maybe he's not going to die. I thought there was a the chance. The song is kind of giving them a kind of new, an escape. The song was just so transcendently uplifting mm. that it really didn't matter. Mm. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I would tear up every time I was watching. It was mm. one of the first things that ever made ah, me yeah. emotional mm. watching a film, you know. Uh, yeah. And it still does to this day. I mean, it's, it's really a, quite a thing that transcends something It's lovely that when, it, when you kind of move to tears by yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Cheer up, the old bugger. Yeah. Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true. You'll see it's all a show. Keep them laughing as you go. Just remember that the last laugh is on you. And always look on the bright side of life. Are you... Excited, pleased about the fact that the what have the Europeans ever done for us has been now yes. taken up as a, a pro-European skit. Yeah, almost. yeah. No, I mean any any time Python is picked up, uh, two thoughts. One is that it's generally used out of context, like Margaret Thatcher and the the dead parrot. The dead parrot. Call the yeah. liberals a dead parrot. He didn't do it very well. It didn't, it's kind of. I thought, oh God, that's a good line, misused. But on the other hand, it, it shows that sort of things have have gone into the language, I suppose, which is quite rare for a comedy show. And things like the nudge unit they have at Downing Street, where it's nudging people into doing something rather than forcing them to do it. What have the Europeans ever done for us? These things, these things do come back, and that's, I suppose, evidence that you're remembered. And, mm. and you're also seen in an odd way as slightly relevant. <laughs> I don't think when, when we wrote Python we ever thought... Is this relevant or not? It's, it's a comedy show. We want to make people laugh. In order to make people laugh, you have to make them think as well mm-hmm. um, and feel something and feel so emotional all that. So, yeah, I like it. Uh, I like to hear moments like that. Mm. Except when it's being used, you know, usually it can be misused. I was sort of used by Thatcher and I think it was some American called Chris Christie who was the mayor of New Jersey. And we didn't like him particularly. And he was pretty right wing. And he used Python tried to use Python for a Python thing for a bit. And um, you want to put a stop to things like that. <laughs> well, you can't choose your fans always, can you? You can't choose your fans, no. I don't know if he was a fan. In politics, it's always somebody has suggested it as a fan on the staff, lower down. You know, it's never, it never comes from top down. OK. Um, Still talking about the movies, I'd forgotten how much a formative part of my youth they were, you know, because I didn't know anything about Monty Python, hadn't seen the TV series. My mm. first exposure to that whole world was, and now for something completely different, which I caught on TV late one night and just thought, what the hell is this? Didn't know anything about it, you know. Made a big impression. Right, yeah. And it was the first time I had seen anything postmodern, I suppose, or meta mm. is what they would say now. Yeah where you had characters from one sketch running through into another sketch yeah. and things like that. Had anyone else done that kind of thing before, you guys that you were aware of? Or? Um, probably Spike Milligan. Right. Spike was very much into sort of 
playing with the form and meta, as you describe it. And that's what we really liked about his TV show, like Q5, I think, was going out just before Python. I mean, he would just have silly things like a character would come on in the middle of a sketch and there would be a, a caption giving the name of the actor and his take-home pay. <laughs> so you just have a sketch being played. John Bluthor, take-home pay, £52, 10 shillings. He played with the form wonderfully. Um, so Spike would have been there. But it became something which we enjoyed doing greatly and we enjoyed the sort of interlacing of the ideas and the sketches. Now for something completely different was quite conventional. It was a film which was made after the first series, I think, of Python uh, to try and sell Monty Python to America. Right, so you reshot some of the we, big we sketches. We reshot all of it, yeah. Right. We reshot all the stuff. Yeah. But it was still basically the same sketches that had been in the TV show. Mm-hmm. And we did mess around a little bit and we had people running through. I can't remember quite how we did it, but we, that was the beginning. And I think later on, in the second and third series, we enjoyed doing that. Mm. We, we enjoyed you know, having people sort of running past the window from somewhere else. It was a, a sort of badge of courage in Python to always try and come up with new, new sketches each time rather mm. than rely on running jokes. There were some running jokes. I mean, the Gumbies, the, my brain hurts, tended to appear rather a lot. But apart from that, it was really important to try and get new new ideas and new ways of putting them together. Yeah. And, of course, having Gilliam was very, very important. Sure. Because he was the sort of... He could take you anywhere you wanted to go and make it very funny and very silly and very strange. And uh, I think he was... Terry was crucially important to Python because it also gives a lot of street cred to have an animator. Mm-hmm. That had never been done before. No. Spike, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, no-one had really used animation um, in a comedy show before. Uh, and that was, um, you know, the standard was high, and it was he was also quite kind of rude and risky, so he ticked all the boxes, Terry. Plus he was able to do it quite quickly. Mm. I mean, I guess the reason that most people don't have an animator as part of their rock and roll mm. team, whether it's comedy or music, mm. is that they... It takes a while to do animation, but he was able to find a way of doing it so that he yeah. could put stuff in every show. It was like a cottage industry. Terry would just cut these things out and move them around himself. Yeah. I think one of the big issues of the first series um, that we took up with the BBC was they wouldn't allow Terry, wouldn't give Terry any money for an assistant. Uh-huh. So he was doing it all himself to start with. And then there was a girl who was uh, Terry, Terry Jones's. Um, sister-in-law, Kate Hepburn, and she sort of came in and helped for no money at all. And eventually, we, when the, the shows went out, they realised that animation was important and he got someone to help him. But basically, he was doing it all on his own up in his top room of his house off West End Lane, mm-hmm. his flat off West End Lane, and churning it in. And I think it was, I think it was very, very hard work. But I'm sure, but it looks great. It looked great. And sometimes things are best produced under pressure. You moan and groan and... All that. If you're given all the time in the world, whatever that means, would it be any better? Probably not. Mm-hmm. And that wonderful opening title sequence in Life of Brian is so spectacular and very much sets out the stall for a yes. for a comedy film that looks like a, a big budget feature mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. that was one of the enjoyable things about it was yeah, the Terry a terrific uh, soundtrack yeah. too. Um, the Brian, the boy they call Brian, yeah. sung and very powerfully arranged. Uh, was it actually Shirley Bassey or someone a sound alike? No, no, it wasn't. Wasn't Shirley Bassey? And it was, um, it was a friend of Andre Jackmins, who's our sort of sound man uh-huh. and has been throughout the Python days. 
Um, he got her to do it. She was just brilliant. It was so, so and, good. Yeah. The first Python film that came out when we were just about old enough to go and see it was The Meaning of Life in 1983. Again, that was one that me and Joey went out and we got the book. And um, we got the book before we went to see the film. Went to W.H. Smith. Here, ah, here it is. Here ah, it is. Mm, Slight, slightly yeah. better bound. Proper size, yeah. Proper size. Yeah, yeah. So you got bits of the script. In, in fact, this one is more scripty. It is, yes. But yeah. it's got yeah. all the big glossy pictures of what was going on. And again, yeah. you could see that it had this really high-budget feature film look mm. and all these extreme images like mm. the um, person getting operated on at the beginning yes. and his guts all being pulled yeah. out. Yeah. And then the topless uh, runners chasing the guy off the cliff yes. at the end. Yeah. Uh, and then the Crimson Permanent Assurance thing, which was like a little mini epic that in was itself. Terry's own little movie yeah. within the movie, yeah. That caused quite a bit of um, a little bit of tension within the group. Because, because it's it quite just... costly. Right, okay. Cost a lot of money. And people kept saying, Terry, have you finished that yet? No, 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 no. But he assembled a most amazing set, um, and it looks fantastic, but it took up quite a bit of the budget. Right. So there you go. But overall, it did seem like a much more extreme thing, and, of course, Mr. Creosote and the um, sketch in the Boer War with the people with all their limbs missing. Yes, and, yeah. Yeah, and we, we struggled with that last film, um, struggled to find, you know, the um, the right mix. Somehow... Holy Grail, well, we had the um, the story of the Grail, the knights and all that. There uh-huh. are, you know, six or seven characters, are all knights, they're finding the Grail. It's a narrative people know and we can make up, up as we go along, but it gave us a structure. Life of Brian, well, you know, um, the wrong Messiah, the birth of Jesus, all that sort of stuff, gave us a structure. The film after that, what was the structure? We just didn't really know and it was the sketches took longer to write. I think in the end it turned out we had some very good stuff in there. I mean, Mr. Creosote is, is still one of the best things Python ever did. But... And it has all these little hidden nuggets. Yes. You, you have the Noel Coward song yes, at the beginning right. of that yeah, sketch, yeah, which yeah, is great. Yeah. And John with the Waffer Thin Mint. Yeah. Just saying Waffer Thin. Very, I don't know why he came up with that. But that's how people remember it. Now, if it said Wafer Thin Mint... Would have been okay, quite funny, but wafer thin. It was this terrible sort of tempted, a sophisticated French yeah. pronunciation of something that was so normal. But it was a struggle to get it all, and, and we wrote lots and lots of material. There's a huge amount uh, was never actually filmed and never got into the script. Um, there was biggles and all that sort of stuff. But in the end. I mean, I think we got some good sketches, but it was much more like, I thought, much more like the TV shows. And there were lots of sketches rather loosely hung together with this birth, you know, uh, birth, life, death. The Ages of Man. Mm-hmm. That was a very, very sort of wafer-thin uh, framework of the thing. Some people's favourite film. I mean, well, well, there's so mine. many extraordinary, over-the-top, memorable moments, and the you know, the Universe song is great. I think the certainly yes. Eric's songs 
yeah, yeah. work amazingly. Well, every sperm is sacred, of course. Is yeah, but that's Terry Jones' mind. Oh, is that Terry Jones? Oh, yes, yours? I have to put you right on that. Sorry. Yes. yes, no, that was... I just assumed he did all the music. No, oh, no, 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 Sorry. no. Sorry. No, no, Lumberjack song was ours too. Right. Um, but no, every sperm is sacred. We were quite, we were quite proud of that. Oh, it's amazing. Terry and I. Um, but yes, the songs did work well, and that uh, and Terry did a most marvelous job of sort of uh, creating a huge musical number out of every sperm is sacred. That's what made it work. You know, if it'd just been the little sketch about the man coming in and got to give his children away for um, charity because he can't afford to keep them, or whatever. Well, I can't remember what he was going to do. But anyway, it, it would have been a sort of okay sketch. It became great because of the musical sequence afterwards. Yeah. Uh, Arlene Phillips choreographed it. It's just terrific. It makes you feel really good. And there's a lot of stuff in in The Meaning of Life as well, which you'd had before, but just an almost rageful sense to me of the folly of war mm. and just very dark stuff about people going out and being chopped up yes, for no yes, good reason. Yes, those are the trenches yeah. sequence, yeah, yeah. Which you get as well a little bit in Life of Brian, again, at... Otto and the Suicide Squad at the end who turn up and see off the Romans only to execute themselves and say, you see, every man a hero. They all died for their country. Yes, yeah. Would you guys ever talk about that stuff or or would you just... That was just all something that you felt the same way about? It probably would be discussed a little bit more than... If it was a straight sketch which just was a comedy sketch, a comedy idea, and it worked, then we'd all agree. That made us all laugh. Put it on the pile. Something that was perhaps, you know, a little more political, a little more crafted, trying to say something very strongly, as I say, about war or death or something that it depended very much on how you approached it, then we would discuss that. Yeah, that was quite a... I mean, we talked about a lot of things like that. Um, And what... Once Python had a voice, as it were, after the TV shows, and I suppose the Holy Grail came along, then you felt that people were kind of much more aware of what you were going to do next and more expectant. And that made us feel, oh, come on, now it's, we've done Grail, we've done Life of Brian, both been very successful. We've really got to be able to say something new and something fresh and something important, as well as doing the comedy. Mm-hmm. And that was a that was a bit of a that's a bit of a sort of difficult thing to compromise. It's a pulling in both directions. One is to make the film very funny. The other is to say we are the Pythons. You know, we made a film about um, religion. If you like, we must now sort of have a view on things. Not easy to reconcile with comedy. And having a view was less important than making people laugh. I think in the end. But that's why I think the last film had some great moments. But just. It, it, it was we were we were tr- striving for an effect which I don't think we um, or, or an overall effect an overall feel to it which we never quite got mm-hmm. it's, it's bitty but a great bits again talking about Terry Gilliam that crimson permanent assurance seemed to point the way to certainly a visual style that he developed mm. in Brazil which was mm. a couple of years mm. after mm. that or mm. something have you watched that recently um, I haven't watched Brazil for a bit no I saw it recently and. I loved it at the time, yeah, but it was very overwhelming. Mm-mm. I was really impressed with how well it holds mm. up. I mean, it, yeah. it really packs such a wallop. Yeah, uh, no, I'm sure. I think it, I think it was it was an extraordinary film. the The look of the film, the art direction of the film, the way you know the, the rows of desks and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, uh, images shot in cooling towers at the end when I'm torturing Jonathan and all that. Very 
kind of extraordinary. You've never seen anything like that on film before. So it was kind of dystopian vision, but it was there was a lot of comedy in it, but there was also a lot going on. There were explosions. It was all about terrorism. Mm. It was about plastic surgery, all sorts of cosmetic yeah, surgery, all sorts of things that we now sort of agonise about were in that film. And, and the constant sort of bewilderment of the main character. You know, he didn't know what was going on, where he was supposed to be, clocks didn't work, devices that were supposed to be incredibly modern that didn't work properly. You know, it's so, so relevant, I think, to nowadays, mm-hmm. um, where we're, we are sort of, I think, in, in many cases, run by a sort of benign um, communication system, which is trying to alter the way we learn about things and the way we deal with things. But it's still a bit big brotherish, I think. Very much so. And that bureaucracy that used to be about the physical world, about paper and files, etc., is now on the internet, of course, yeah. and it's all mm. stored yeah. there and all the yeah. facts and figures about you and, and the way that Buttle and Tuttle are yes. confused yeah. and, and then ruin a whole man's life just because of a fly landing on a typewriter at the beginning of the yeah. film. You feel as if people's lives can be similarly mangled mm. on online. Yeah. Uh, with, with little bits of information. We know. Yeah. yeah. You know, they can. Yeah, that's very true. He, the men at the desks, you know, the automatons are working away at the desks, and now people sort of probably living in rather pleasant communities in California, yeah. sort of working out ways in which we can uh, kind of bring the world all together into a great collective. Run that's by, right. Run by themselves. Yes, Big Brother now it'll has be nice. a, a far more wonderful. smiley yeah. face. And yeah. it's like, hey, come on, we can all be pals. We can yeah. have our cake and eat it. Mm. We've got to organise things. Yeah. There's got to be a system. Yeah. But, hey, that doesn't mean to say we can't all have a great time while we're doing it. Yeah. Do no evil. Yeah. Uh, is um, that Google's catchphrase? Is it? Yeah. Uh, Try not to be evil. It's something yeah, like something, that. Something really, really Python could have come up with. I that. mean, really, you know. I was really struck by the section in your traveling to work diaries where you're writing and then making American friends. You were around about the same age that I am now, and it seemed like a real struggle to make that film from beginning to end. How do you feel about it now? Because at the time, you seemed so ambivalent. I'm very happy now that it was made, Mm. because I think the best thing about the whole process was the actual making of the film, working with the team, working with the crew, working with people like Connie Booth and Fred Molina, um, working with the director. It was a very happy film to make, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's a very rather delightful film. It's not heavyweight, but... It works, it's got a good story. The diary reveals how long it took us to get to that point, you know, like three years or so of looking for money, resisting attempts to cast big names because we didn't want to and all that sort of stuff. And and then the ghastly business afterwards of distribution. You can make the best film in the world. If, you don't, if a, dis- a distributor is not there to push it or it puts it into only a few cinemas with no publicity, then you're stuck. So it was really like... Um, a sort of sandwich, you know, with kind of bits of dry bread on either side and in the middle, something really quite tasty, which was the actual film itself. So I'm glad we made it. I couldn't believe when I I was putting the diaries together how much time we'd spent thinking about it, making it into the shape it should be. But I think we did most things right. Um, There were maybe differences of emphasis, finally, that we could have changed in the script and all that, tightened up the ending... 
Um, but on the whole, I was pleased with the film. And I left in a lot of the material I'd written about setting up the film because I think people just... I wanted to show, really, the difference between film and television. Mm -hmm. The fact that you could do six ripping yarns um, within about a year and a half from writing to actually shooting. And with film, no, they can go on and on. Um, and it happens to lots of other people. People much better than I am have stood around for years waiting for the money. That's the nature of movies, and perhaps why I sort of, in the end, was really happy to go off and do the travel documentaries rather than make films all the time. Because the travel documentaries got made, were shown, end of story. You know, film ideas may be taken up, may not be taken up, may be made, will be made, but then won't be shown. You know, it's a shifting, uncertain world. Yeah. And now, of course, you're associated with the world of travel. And this is a question that's been asked before, I think. But if you could live anywhere that wasn't the UK, mm. where would you go, probably? <sighs> I've seen so much of the world and mm. there's so many places that impressed me and that I've loved and have enjoyed. And yet I've always felt very strongly that my travelling was travelling from a base and back to a base. Yeah. It was a bit like going out of the harbour, doing your exploring and then coming back to the harbour breathing a sigh of relief and saying, hey, we're back, and here's our story. That's, it was all about coming back. So, that, you know, bearing that in mind, I would say there are certain places, I suppose, you know, southern France, north Italy. I like the lifestyle there. It's very, it's very pleasant. I could live in parts of America. I'm not sure now, but I, I Whereabouts in the think, States? I think I'd probably live uh, somewhere on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. I quite like Vermont. Got some friends out there. Right. Um near the mountains, quite spectacular. Uh, otherwise, it's quite tricky. I mean, the tough option would be somewhere where you had to learn the language and right. and there you could possibly gain a lot from learning the language and, and getting somewhere to that know was... somewhere that was utterly different. Yes, like okay. Japan, for instance. You know, fascinates yeah, yeah, me, Japan, yeah. and yet seems so completely and utterly foreign and all the signs are in Japanese and all that. And yet I feel the people are very similar to us in certain ways, mm -hmm. offshore island and all that. Um, Have you been to Japan recently? No, I haven't been to Japan for years, actually. Yeah, I wonder if it... Because uh, myself and Joe went there to do a TV show in 2003, mm. and we were there for about 10 weeks or something. Yeah, and and it, it made a huge impression. Mm. And we were in Tokyo. It was um, almost like somewhere in the West, but in the 50s. Yeah. So mm. very little crime, not particularly a diverse culture. You know, it was mainly yeah. indigenous Japanese mm. people there. Yeah. Very different, diametrically opposite, I suppose, yeah. from living in London. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, where we soak up so many influences, and we, we like that. Well, yeah. most of us like it, I like it. And also the Japanese have always been big fans of Monty Python. Right. From very early on. And it was Spike Milligan who went out there, and he said, you know, your show's out there, you know what they call it? They call it something in Japanese, and, and you know, the translation is, Gay Boy's Dragon Show. And that was what we were <laughs> yeah. called in, in Japan. What was it that, uh, they, that they also had a good name for the upper-class tweet of the year? Do you remember what that oh, was? Oh, yeah, no, I can't remember that. Fact-checking Santa here. It was the aristocratic deciding foolish number one guy. <laughs> Merry Christmas. But they were mysterious people whose culture I don't really know much about, whose language I know nothing about. And yet they were some of the earliest real fans of Python. Mm -hmm. And, they, and I, I get quite a number of rather beautifully written, beautifully crafted fan letters yeah. from Japan. 
Um, and they're all beautifully calligraphed with little drawings and all that. And uh, as you say, it's a bit like the 50s. It's not all done high-tech. It's actually the belief in writing and making your own little message and all that. Mm. And I think there's something I would really like then. And I wouldn't mind sort of staying and finding out. But, yeah. yeah, I'd like that too. Um, finally, at the risk of ending on a, a kind of um, down note, which we may cut out, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it can be up or down. I don't mind. Um, I wanted to ask you your oh, description yeah. of Graham Chapman's mm. death was mm. was very moving, and it reminded me a lot of my dad's death. The way you describe it was almost identical to my dad's mm. final hours. Mm. The breathing, and you know, mm. I'm just talking yes. on a practical level. Yeah, the, the the breathing, the way you described it, the single tear rolling down the cheek happened. I wonder if that's a thing that is a sort of physical reaction i couldn't I, I was confused when it happened i was like is that just an automatic physical thing or is that an mm. emotional thing because he had a kind of thousand yard stare by that point you know mm. he'd sort of mm. checked out mm. a little bit yeah. uh, and i think that was the case with graham as well the mm. way you describe it well what i've heard from more than one person is that you really never know exactly what somebody who appears to be in a coma or even the last stages of their life are picking up and can hear or cannot hear. And I learned that really when my dad died. And uh, I wasn't actually there when he died, but he, I was there an afternoon when he was really breathing in that sort of croaky way. And I remember just sort of saying to him, is he going to die? And at the same time, someone just taking me aside and saying, you know, he can, can hear, might be able to hear what you're saying. This, this very often happens. So you don't really know um, what's, what's going on there and what's getting through. So I don't know if the single tear is something you've said or it's, a, you know, it's a, just a way that the, I don't know, the system shutting down, the eyes well up, whether that's just one of those things that happens. So I don't, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what I do know is that, that you, you might as well keep talking and I kept talking to Graham about all sorts of things, the things that I thought he'd enjoy, that, you know, someone had had a bad review, someone he didn't like had had a bad review, you know, sort of mean little things, but I th- knew he would love were he, were he still conscious. Whether that got through, I just don't know. And have you developed strategies for dealing with that, or is it always just the same? No, I mean, it sounds an odd thing to say, but around about 1989... For instance, three people I knew very well. <laughs> My mother was one, Graham was another, and a very good friend of mine, an American guy called Al Levinson, who was a real rock and a wonderful guy to sort of just just chew the fat with and talk about life. All three died within a period of about sort of two or three months. And I've never had a period quite like that since. Um, touch wood. Um, nobody very, very close to me ha- has died. But... You know, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say, really. It's, it, I think I have exactly the same sort of attitude, which is to celebrate someone's life till the last moment. I just hate this sort of dreadful solemnity that happens and sort of curtains get drawn and all that. Um, most of the people I know, you know, they're jolly people who've entertained me and we've had great times together. So I think of them and what they mean to me and what what we enjoyed while we were still alive. And I know they would have enjoyed the curtains being opened and, uh, you know, wine bottle being opened and all that. And that kind of gives me 
um, a sort of way of dealing with it. You weren't able to think of a My Biggest Moment thing, were you? Uh, well, I did think of My Biggest Moment. Oh, yeah, but it's a bit corny. Go on, then. The birth of my son. Uh-huh. My first son. I'm not, <laughs> not saying the other two weren't also big moments, but actually being there when Tom was born was just the greatest thing. What year was that? 1968. Right. So you were right in the middle of pythoning. No. No, we hadn't started Python. Had you, had you not? No. Python was 1969. Right. Tom was born. We were in the middle of doing Do Not Just Your Set and the Green right, History of Britain. Um, so he was, he was the pre-Python baby. The other two came afterwards. But that, that was just sensational. And having a son, really, that was just lovely. Sorry, there should be something more epochal, but uh, that, that's the one that yeah. I thought of. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. There we go. Michael Palin. It was a great pleasure to meet Michael Palin and I want to thank him very much for his time and for putting up with some uh, observations about those Monty Python films which were perhaps a little over-reliant on impressions formed as a 12-year-old. Anyway, he entertained them all very charmingly and it was really great to meet him and I hope I'll see him again sometime. I want to thank his daughter, Rachel, very much and thanks as well to my pal, Nicky Waltham, for basically uh, getting Michael on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. I owe you uh, drinks and favours. Thanks very much to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for production support. Thanks, Seamus. And that's pretty much it for this week. I'm going to try and keep these podcasts a little bit more regular in the forthcoming weeks, if I possibly can. Until next time we are together, please take exceptionally good care. You've got to be careful. There's maniacs out there. Did you know? There's people wandering around on a hair trigger. Antagonists. People that just don't like the look of your face. Or maybe it's just my face. I don't know. In fact, it just reminded me, yesterday I was driving into town, driving into Norwich, 
and I was pulling out from a small road onto a larger road and I was joining a queue of traffic, slow-moving traffic. So I thought that it would be acceptable to pull into that queue ahead of a fellow that was approaching uh, on the larger road. But he did not appreciate it. And when I got into that queue, he pulled up right behind me and he was gesticulating wildly. <laughs> it was very theatrical. I could almost hear what he was shouting, uh, the abuse that he was hurling at me for the benefit of the person in his passenger seat saying what an absolute tool bag I was for pulling out in front of him. I'd like to point out that it was in no way dangerous. He was coming at a fair lick the other way. But there was no danger of us having a collision or uh, me being unsafe because I'm one of the best drivers in the United Kingdom and I would never do anything unsafe. No, 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 no. But this guy was incandescent and he wasted no time overtaking me as soon as we got to the roundabout he zipped around me got in front of me and then we spent around the next 20 minutes traveling more or less bumper to bumper in the uh, in the traffic to pretty much the same destination in Norwich <laughs> but he would have been happy though because he taught me a lesson I've taught you an absolutely lesson that you will never soon forget about pulling out in front of me in, into a road. And the lesson now has been hammered home by me being in front of you in the traffic queue, just ahead of you, but still in front. And that's where I belong, with you behind and wishing that you were in my car with me ranting about what a giant idiot hole you are in your stupid pulling out in front of me car you gotta be careful there's highly strong characters out there and i'm one of the worst of them so watch out i love you bye like and subscribe like and subscribe like and subscribe please like and subscribe Give me like a smile and a thumbs up. Nice like a pat when me bumps up.